Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Well, she's got a lot of things on her mind to talk about now. She's taking care of her voice, so you know that she's not gonna shout now. So get your headphones ready to hear what it's all about now. We'll have no fun, 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 cause your Christmas podcast comes out today. We'll have no fun, 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 cause your Christmas podcast comes out today. No fun, the Jen Kirkman Podcast, episode 362. Hi, I am Jen. I'm a comedian. My comedy special is I'm Gonna Die Alone and I Feel Fine and Just Keep Living are now streaming on Netflix, but this is a podcast. This is not a comedy special. This is just where I go to be another side of myself, the real me, like a friend leaving you a really long voicemail, which sounds annoying, but maybe you'll like this. I always say this is a great podcast to listen to while you're doing dishes or need someone to talk to you while you're driving over a scary bridge. Nothing is scripted. It's not joke per minute. It's sometimes funny, sometimes serious. But at the very least, it's always honest and real. I'm also an author, and you can get my books, I Can Barely Take Care of Myself, and I Know What I'm Doing and Other Lies I Tell Myself anywhere that you buy books. I am also part of the Misfit Toys Collective, started by Matt Belknap and Jimmy Pardo of the Never Not Funny podcast. Please check out all the podcasts on our collective, which include Mike Schmidt's The 40-Year-Old Boy. If you like this podcast, you might love his. It's also a solo podcast. Doug Loves Movies, The Todd Glass Show, and Never Not Funny. So here we go. What do I want to talk about this week? Well, really quick, I want to remind you all to get tickets to the Jen Kirkman Dysfunctional Christmas Show, the ninth annual. It is online, everybody. So you don't have to risk COVID unless you invite a bunch of people over like a lunatic without masks and go, why don't we all watch it at my place? Well, then you're going to risk COVID. But if you're sitting home alone, allow the Dysfunctional Christmas Show to warm your heart. You don't have to like Christmas or celebrate Christmas, hence the word dysfunctional in front of it. I will be having special surprise guests, comedians that you may know. There will be music and sketches and monologues. It's not your typical stand-up show, and it's certainly not your typical Christmas show. And this year, it's coming to you straight from my living room in Los Angeles in front of what will be my new white Christmas tree. And I'm really, I'm really excited about it. So here's how you get tickets. It's now before you tune out when I tell you the date and time, let me tell you if you can't tune in at that date and time, if you buy a ticket now, you still get to own the episode or the show for 48 hours after. So there you go. You can watch it at your leisure that weekend. It's Friday, December 4th, 6 p.m. Los Angeles time, West Coast time, Pacific time, you could call it. And of course, that makes it at 9 p.m. Eastern time. So there you go. That will be your Christmas party for the year. Pour yourself a drink or a hot whatever you do. Tune in for about 70 minutes and laugh your face off. Enjoy yourself. There'll be a lot of love, a lot of warmth. It's one of my favorite shows. I do it every year in Los Angeles only. And for the first time, thanks to a global pandemic, that is getting more out of hand by the day all over the world. People can tune in. Go to on location. Oh, should I tell you how? Go to onlocationlive.com slash Jen Kirkman or jenkirkman.com. It's right there on the homepage. Or if you want to go to Twitter at Jen Kirkman, it is my pinned tweet. Please buy tickets. The more people that buy them, the less I have to keep promoting it. But we do have a good amount of people that have bought tickets already, and I'm so grateful to you. There's also an extra meet and greet after the show where I'm going to dress up like Santa, and you can virtually sit on my lap and tell me what you want. (laughs) Pretty stupid. And that will have a limited amount because um, 
you know, that would take a long time. So get on that before I cut off the uh, cutoff. All right. So this week, what the fuck are we talking about? Well, I also, oh, by the way, I also have a Patreon. I've already talked to the Patreon subscribers for 15 minutes before I hit record on this podcast. They get to see the video version of this. They get to see me chilling in my sweatpants in front of my peel and stick wallpaper in my living room. For $5 a month, you get four videos a month, plus a bonus episode, plus any other random bonuses I throw at you, like stand-up sets from on the road. The levels go up from there, 10, 15, 20. It just simply means the more you pay, the more extra bonuses you get. But at the $5 level, you are still getting at least an hour of bonus material a month. And uh, again, I already told the Patreon subscribers what my hot take on the show, The Queen's Gambit, that will not be available on this episode, only the video version. So there you go. Patreon.com slash Jen Kirkman, a great way to support me since I am not on tour in 2020 or 2021. So this is technically like touring for me. So come on down to Patreon, five bucks a month. Cancel anytime. So some months you don't got it, you cancel it. There you go. Okay, great. So what are we going to talk about today? An airplane in the in 1990 where a pilot was sucked out of the window for 15 minutes hanging on with his head banging against the side of the plane and they and he lived. This story is crazy and I don't remember it from growing up. I was 16 years old then. I would have definitely heard this. I wonder if I filed it away somewhere where you file away trauma (laughs) because I had a massive fear of flying. I mean, I had it before that, but I certainly had a massive fear of flying in my teens and early twenties and and didn't get on a a plane for a long time. Um, Like I stopped flying at about 13. I said, like I was an admiral in the, in the, um, I I retired at 13. Um, put all my best flying years behind me, Captain Kirkman. Um, yeah. And then, you know, I started again. I started again when I was about 22. No, but I took, uh, I think my last flight with my family to Florida when I was 14 and I just couldn't take it anymore. I said the vacation is not worth the anxiety of flying. I did an, a whole episode about fear of flying so long ago. I could probably link to it. I, I could probably do a better episode now. But, um, and as you guys know, I talk about anxiety a lot and panic. And, and if you guys want to get my uh, PDF file of anxiety tips and you want to read my newsletters and watch my videos that I've written about it, just send me an email, anxietybitesweekly at gmail.com and just write help. In the subject line, you don't have to go on and on because I don't write back and forth. I send you the thing. We're done. Uh, Men, don't use it to hit on me. Some of you have been doing that. Not cool. Just write help. I'll send you the thing. Don't need to know your story. Everyone gets the same thing. Um, That might help if you're like, hey, speaking of fear of flying, I'm an anxious person. So this story, trigger alert. Now, it's going to make you anxious, but it's a happy ending in terms of not only did everyone live, but they the reason that this hasn't happened again is because they knew what went wrong and they changed the regulations. So it's a great story, but it was interesting. So it was going around on Twitter. Well, I'm also going to be talking today about skipping jury duty and being a fugitive on the run because of it. And, um, listener emails in an ongoing segment of things that aren't a big deal, but they totally annoy me. So, and if you want to contribute to that, just send an email to iseemfun at gmail.com anytime. That is an ongoing beef, no matter when you're listening to this. So this was kind of going around on Twitter. This guy wrote, hey, if everyone needs a distraction, here's a crazy story. And then if you clicked on it, he was trying to get you to join his paid newsletter, which is fine. No, no, no big deal there. But I decided not to do that and just go research the story on my own because I'm cheap. <laughs> and again, 1990, I was 16 in high school. There was no Internet. 
But big stories like this absolutely would have been on the news, I assume. I don't remember it. But I know that if I did know about it back then, it would have cemented me not flying ever again. And uh, so I wonder, again, if I did hear about it and I just filed it away, tucked in the folds of my fear of flying neurosis and just because back then I was so anxious that even hearing a story like this would have sent me into a panic attack as though I was on the flight. And so I probably, you know, if I walked by the living room and somebody was watching this on the news, I would have heard one second of it and been like, bye. You know, my dad, I, when I was young, my dad took me to see a plane crash, which I know is not like, oh, we all did that with our dads. I have such great memories of seeing plane crashes with my dad. But my dad's friend, Norman, who was a greenskeeper of another golf course about 20 minutes away from our house, called my dad and said this little like, you know, Cessna plane, like some antique, you know, some guy that's like, I've got a World War II. It, it wasn't really a World War II plane, but some someone with like an antique plane, the way you'd have an antique car, uh, crashed on the golf course. Nobody died. Everyone, everything was fine. But the plane was still there, you know, mildly on fire, giving off a lot of smoke. So my dad was like, hey, want to go see this? I mean, I don't know why I went. And I think I must have been eight, nine, ten. So it was right in the wheelhouse of when my fear of flying developed. And this probably didn't help. So we drive down there and everything is uh, cordoned off. We can't get on the course to be a looky-loo like everyone else is trying to. And I don't remember this part, but my dad reminded me a couple of weeks ago when I was talking to him that he jumped into, he somehow we got out of the car and he walked over to a golf cart and got in it and we drove on and he was like, I'm the greenskeeper. And they believed him. And then he saw his friend Norman and <laughs> I don't know, it's something like that. So he really made an effort to show his child a plane that had just crashed. That was important to my dad. No one's going to stop my daughter from seeing a smoking, burning plane on a golf course. And I remember seeing it and just it's it's there. It's like it's like a it's like a memory of a photograph. I don't have a memory of the day. Again, I think it just went straight into the folds of my anxiety trauma. I just I don't remember how I felt about it. I don't know if I thought it was thrilling or didn't apply to me or I put two and two together that sometimes planes crash, but this isn't a jet airliner. This is a, this, this is the type of plane that crashes. It's, it's a risk and uh, I'll be fine if I'm just going to Orlando with my family. I don't know. I don't know. I have zero memory. I just know that it happened. And I got confirmation from my dad when we were talking a few weeks ago and I said, did you take me to see a plane crash when I was younger? Because I have this memory, but I don't know. It's like, I know you did, but I don't remember it. Oh, yeah. And then um, I snuck onto the golf course and, and I kept going, well, that must have been scary. No, no, little plane, little plane. I'm like, okay, you're not listening, to, not hearing my needs here. So anyway, um, this is a British... British flight. I think it was British Airways. That's the worst airline, by the way. I mean, it's not technically. I just, it's so much grosser. Like whenever I have to fly to London, I will either fly um, Delta or Virgin or Air New Zealand. But British Airways, ugh, it's like sticky and gross. Anyway, so... June 10th, 1990. This story is crazy. And I'm going to put, um, if you're a Patreon subscriber, the link will be in the description of this episode. If you're not, you can just Google miracle of BA flight 5390. And so they did a reenactment. So the reason I'm telling you to Google it is there's some really cool pictures 
that are part of the reenactment that actually show you what it looked like to be the pilot who got sucked out of the plane. So anyway, an aviation disaster was narrowly averted in 1990, June 10th, when a wrongly installed panel of the windscreen on British Airways flight 5390 fell out. So it basically the window in the cockpit, the side window, not the big window that you look out at, but imagine you're the co-pilot on the left side of the plane and that little, just a, just a little side panel, like the size smaller than a uh, car window. When a wrongly installed panel of the windscreen on British Airways flight 5390 fell out, causing the plane's cockpit to decompress and its captain to be pulled halfway out of the aircraft at over 17,000 feet. So it had left Birmingham airport. I guess that's in, yeah, Birmingham, England um, at 7:20 AM heading for Spain at the controls were captain Tim Lancaster, 42 and his co-pilot 39 year old Alistair Atchison. They were both experienced flyers and their takeoff was routine. So about 15 minutes into the flight, the plane's at 17,000 feet over Oxfordshire. There was a loud bang in the cockpit, and the wind screen on the captain's side blew out, causing immediate decompression. Now, both pilots that were flying the plane, Tim Lancaster and... Uh, Alistair Atchison, Tim Lancaster is the one that got sucked out of the plane. Both pilots had loosened their harnesses because they were, you know, 12 minutes in, we're rocking and rolling here. And because of that, Tim Lancaster was forcefully pulled toward the open window by the rush of air. And I guess there's a National Geographic Channel documentary called Air Crash Investigation. And there's a still from it. it. And it shows the whole top half of his body was dragged out of the plane with only his legs remaining inside and they were caught on the flight controls. So if you look at the picture, he looks, again, it's a reenacting. There is no real photo of this incident, but his legs are wrapped around the side of the plane. His feet are stuck in the controls and the rest of his body, it really is like one of those things you see outside of a car dealership, those flippy floppy things. So he's laying back pinned to the plane, his arms in the air, like, like, so if you're again, what, I mean, please get the Patreon version so you can see my amazing reenactment. And, you know, he's, it's, he's outside at 17,000 feet. First of all, you can just get frostbite and die. Never mind the intense pressure that that's doing to your body where you're just slamming against the plane. So flight attendant, a flight attendant named Nigel was on the flight deck at the time. And he quickly grabbed hold of Tim Lancaster's belt while the captain, Tim Lancaster, he was flung from side to side on the outside of the plane by powerful winds. And he began to lose consciousness in the thin air at that altitude. Of course, nobody knows this, So Ogden, Nigel Ogden, that's the flight attendant, he began to suffer from frostbite and exhaustion just from being near this open window and from holding this pilot's body. You know, they were trying to hold him so that he wouldn't fly away. And then uh, Chief Steward John Hayward and flight attendant Simon Rogers all came in to relieve Nigel and hold this pilot in at different intervals. So... The pilot's head was now banging against the side of the cockpit, leading everyone, all the crew, you know, all three flight attendants in the cockpit to believe that he had died. And there was some discussion, like, do we let go? I can't believe there was a discussion about that. Like, of course you don't let go, because even if he did die, like, you want the body for his family, you know? But anyway, um, they held onto his body, not to be amazing people, but because if his body flew away and got sucked into the plane's engine, then the plane would crash and kill everybody. So that was actually what the reason that they held him. So they were given permission for an emergency landing at Southampton airport. And the other pilot, Alistair 
brought the plane down safely as the crew hung on grimly to Tim Lancaster. When they landed, he was discovered to be fucking alive and they rushed to the hospital. The whole ordeal had lasted 22 minutes. So uh, the flight was carrying 81 passengers and crew at the time of incident. Everybody lived. But there's a picture. So there's one photo of the actual plane, which they took after it landed. And the whole area near the window is spattered with blood. And that's, it's unreal that he lived. There's no reason for him to have lived. From losing consciousness at that altitude to freezing to death to your head being smacked against the plane. It's, it's a fucking miracle. So anyway... Um, that's one article. So then this other article goes into it in a little more detail. Why don't I remember that again? I wonder if any of you remember this story, especially those of you who live in, in the UK. So the guy was back out and flying like five months later. Uh, let's see. So now, okay, so this one goes into a little more detail. So one of the um, flight attendants that was holding him felt like his arms were going to pop out of their sockets. Like they were really having trouble hanging on to him any longer. And then that's why they kept switching off. And uh, the pilot was making desperate mayday calls, but he couldn't hear ground control or whatever you call it, uh, flight people. (laughs) It's definitely called flight people. Um, He was talking to the flight people. And he couldn't hear them because of the sound. I mean, they're flying with an open window. So the sound of the air rushing, like he couldn't hear uh, air control, flight people. Air traffic control. Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. What am I going to be like when I'm 80? Um, Upon reaching a lower altitude, the pilot flying plane again, Alistair, started to slow down and level out. And as he did so, Captain Lancaster's body slid down around the left side of the cockpit, leaving his bloodied and battered face plastered against the window. So now they're just looking at what they think is this dead guy's bloody face looking into the window. Um, One look through the window told them he was probably gone. His eyes were wide open, totally unblinking, and his skin was going gray. And then that's when someone was like, maybe we should let go of the body. (laughs) That person's a dick. And then that's when flight flight attendant Nigel Ogden shot down that suggestion on principle, and the pilot agreed, pointing out that his body could strike the wings or the engines and take the plane down. So they continued to hold on for dear life. I mean, it was very difficult to hold on to him. It's not like they were just being assholes. Um, freezing 560 kilometer per hour winds. So when the plane slowed down to a reasonable speed, the wind noise reduced enough for the pilot to talk to air traffic control. They went to the closest available airport. They thought that there had been an explosive on board or something. Anyway, um, all passengers disembarked without a single injury. Paramedics found all of the uh, flight attendants and the pilot suffering from minor injuries, ranging from frostbite to shock to a dislocated shoulder. There was little hope for Captain Lancaster, who had been pinned to outside of the plane. But as paramedics removed his body, he started to show signs of life. Within a few minutes, he opened his eyes, regained consciousness, and appeared to be recovering. Reportedly, the first thing he said after coming around was, I want to eat. (laughs) In what can only be considered a medical miracle, Tim Lancaster suffered little more than frostbite, bruising, and a few relatively minor bone fractures. That's fucking crazy. He returned to flying jets for British Airways only five months after the accident. Wow. So basically, it was a really simple thing. The bolts were too narrow for the window, and they'd simply pulled right out of their holes. And it was a situation where the person doing it was just trying to get the job done. Um, But 
there's a whole boring thing that you can read about it if you want to. If you go to admiralcloudberg.medium.com, um, it's on there and you can read about it. But the person doing it was just trying to keep the aircraft on schedule. They were a little cocky, overconfident. And now the way they fixed it is the bolts are not just bolted from the outside, but from the inside as well. So it, it changed the way that even like windows are done on airplanes. So don't you worry. It's not going to happen on your flight. You'll probably just get COVID. Okay. No, I won't because of the mask and the air. I know. I know the whole drill that planes are actually probably kind of safe because of the air circulation filters are really good. I got it. I got it. I'm just not going to risk it right now. So I don't know. I think that story is pretty amazing. I mean, I must have, I must have heard about it, but yeah, if anyone's heard about it, hit me up, hit me up, girl. I seem fun at gmail.com and tell me your recollection of when you heard that news. I was born in 1990. How could I have heard it? Well, not you then. So I remember a few months ago, I was freaking out because uh, I got jury duty and I was so mad about it. And I remember that same week, my friend Tammy had it and she was calling in every day to check. Oh, she had it like the week before me. And she was like, oh, I ended up not having to serve. So I get this notice that I have jury duty in October and I'm like, oh, fuck. So I get um, a letter from my therapist and a letter from my pulmonologist and my pulmonologist was like, Oh my God, I'm yawning because this story is boring me. <coughs> You're like, she's got bad asthma. She's got all this pre-existing stuff. She can't get COVID or she's fucked. My therapist was like, she can't get COVID or she's fucked. And this makes her anxious. So she can't come to jury duty. I mean, this is when we were, you know, I got the notice in like July when California was still kind of on a lockdown. And I was like, how are they even having jury duty? And on the website, it said, you know, the courts are closed right now anyway, but when your time comes, you know, please call in to check. So I totally forgot about it. Oh, anyway, I sent the letter so I could reschedule it. That's what it was. I got it for July. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? And so I sent a letter, all these letters and I rescheduled, but they didn't let the letters were supposed to exempt me from jury duty at all this year. And it didn't work. They were like, we don't care what your therapist or your pulmonologist says. So then I just got rescheduled for October and then I just was like, fine, whatever. And yeah, so my friend Tammy had already gone through this in July. She called in every day. They never needed her, blah, blah, blah. So then I get this uh, text in October, like a couple weeks ago. And it says, you know, go to the My Jury website and blah, blah. So I go to the website and it says, you don't have to go to jury duty today. Check again tomorrow or check again tonight for tomorrow. And I was like, oh shit, it's this week. Well, all right. So I checked again and then I was like, well, wait, if I don't check, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done. I went, if I don't check it, then I can just say, oh, I forgot to check. And they'll have proof that I didn't check it because I won't have logged in. And then if I don't show up, it won't be like I checked it, knew that I got assigned and then didn't show up. It'll be like, oh, she didn't show up. And oh, her excuse was she forgot to check it. That checks out. We don't have proof of her logging in. I, that was what I made up in my head. It was sort of like when I was 20, I thought if you just didn't pay your credit card bill that they were that I literally thought this is how stupid I was. I thought that they couldn't get you. What What is wrong with me? I thought that they'd be like, well, we tried to reach her, but oh, well. Really stupid. So anyway, uh, I thought I'm classic making up, making up a thing and believing it. Right. The, the true pattern of someone with anxiety is we make shit up and then we believe it. And sometimes it worked. I'm not saying I was anxious about it. I'm just saying it's it's a pattern of my thinking. Oh, well, this is probably true. Okay, we'll act on it then. Instead of just finding out, you know. So anyway, I uh, 
So this thing happens. So the next week, I decide to check the website just to see, you know, what had happened the week before. Was I ever called? And it said, your failure to appear at jury duty, blah, blah. And I was like, fuck, I guess I was called. And then I read it further and it said, you failed to check in, which is the same as failure to appear. So you could owe 1500 in fines and now you're getting rescheduled. Don't fuck this one up or it could get worse. So I'm such an idiot. I probably the last two days of the week was not called, but because I didn't check in, I, it made it seem as though I didn't show up. And so in other words, if I had just checked it, I'd be done. I'd be done. They'd be like, we don't need you. So I get called again and I'm be, as you're listening to this, it's day three of me checking in. And if you're watching this on Patreon, because the Patreon subscribers, they get access to the episode a few days early on the video version. So it's Sunday now as I'm recording this. So I'll call tonight. No, I already called about Monday. I'm not needed Monday. So Monday night, I'll call about Tuesday. So I am going to call. But if I get jury duty, I'm not showing up. Like, I'm just not. It's it's COVID is spiking. It's just, it makes me so mad. So my friend Justin got jury duty and he just did it on Zoom. But his was indicated that his would be online. Mine is like, you have to go to COVID courthouse at one COVID square in a building called, you know, the ICU. Sorry, we don't have ventilators, floor six. I mean, I am not sitting in a fucking courthouse all day with a mask on just to serve my country. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm a draft dodger. I'm a, I'm a jury duty. I've gone to jury duty before, but there's plenty of fucking people that love this. I'm telling you, there's plenty of people who aren't afraid of COVID. I sent you assholes, my letters. Imagine if they were listening, I'm not going to make any friends by calling them assholes. But, you know, I've got friends who went to fucking Cabo last week. I mean, I, my head is spinning. I don't understand how people aren't concerned about sharing a house. I know it's friends of yours, but you can't you can trust your friends, but you can't trust the virus. Why let them get jury duty? Why am I getting jury duty? I am fucking not. I'm like I didn't go to the farmer's market this morning because I was afraid because COVID is spiking so bad right now that there's talk of possibly another you know, lockdown in California, which just means that like no more dining in restaurants, takeout only. I think it would mean less people allowed at a time in a grocery store. I mean, a lot, I don't know. Every part of California is different. I don't think we're going to, by the way, I, I don't think the governors are going to because we're not getting federal aid. And so they, they really can't just shut down and not pay people. But we need federal aid, but Trump doesn't want to give federal aid, especially to California. So we're not fucking getting it. So it's like there's nothing we can do. You know, this whole thing is a disaster times 10. I guess the governors could shut things down. I don't uh, without a financial plan, but no one's going to look big picture and go. They're not getting everyone's just going to be mad. And, 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 and it's everybody. It's not just Trump supporters, because that's that's only 40% of the country that I see most people have given up on giving a shit about COVID and they've convinced themselves only old people get it or only pre-existing conditions. People get it like they're nobody's thinking. No, this, this is, this is, this is my analogy of people who are otherwise good people who just keep doing whatever. Here's my theory. Okay. Here's my thing. So the governor, the mayor, they're like, wear a mask, wear a mask, wear a mask. Okay. Most people in California are wearing masks. This is not the land totally of people going crazy, not wearing masks and being like, fuck my freedom, my mask, my, no, the Nazis. Some parts of California are like that. But most what's happening now with this spike is indoor hanging out. So California, it's warm, but at night it is cold enough that you really don't want to sit outside shivering in 48 degree weather, you know? So 
it's it's a it's a story. My a friend of mine was telling me he went to a outdoor like five people social distance like have some drinks in the backyard and he got there and they're like you know what it's kind of cold let's all go inside and he's like then I'm leaving and everyone's like really I think we're all safe and he was like no I came because it's outside I'm not going inside so this is what's happening it's peer pressure situations like that it's it's hanging out indoors it's causing it and they say 15% of the reason is from outdoor dining so here's what I think is happening. Yes, you have people that are like, I'm not wearing a mask. And then you have people that are like, I'm totally careful. I wear a mask in the grocery store because that's what they tell me to do. But then they make up their own rules and they start being like, I'm in a pod with Shirley and Cindy and Beepy and Boopy and Buppy and Beepy. And you're like, that's not a pod. You don't live with them. Oh, they're my friends that I trust. And then hoo-ha and ding-dong and da-da and ding-dong, they're all coming too. And I'm like, this pod's getting out of control. They're safe. They got tested last week. And then what did they, did they quarantine after that? Yeah, they quarantined. Then they went to the movies and they went to their mom's house and they went to a drive-in. But they're safe. They use hand sanitizer. And I'm like, okay, no one knows what they're talking about. And then people will start pulling the mental health card, which is funny because I'm like, I'm the one sitting inside who just recently went back on antidepressants. Oh my God. I was talking about this in the, in the Patreon bonus. Anyone who goes back and forth on meds. Um, I don't mean goes back and forth, like in your opinion on meds, but I'm someone that like, I don't have severe enough depression to warrant. You've got to stay on these the rest of your life or there's a problem. I, I, I go through periods and then I come off and it's fine. And, but I was, I was in, I was in one. And so I went back on. So anyway, my point is that like, I know tons of people that don't even have mental health issues. They're just anxious. They're just like bummed about the pandemic. It's not, it's going to go away once the, the pandemic goes away. Um, and they're like, it's good for our mental health, you know, to, and I'm like, that's fine. So do outdoor hang six feet apart in masks or take a walk with a friend six feet apart in a mask, but don't pull the, it's good for the soul to everybody sit inside and have a dinner party thing. And this is what this, so because people I know are like, I don't understand it. My friends are really smart and they're really cool. And they're, you know, they totally believe in COVID, but they're having these dinner parties. And I'm like, this is, this is why it's my world war two example. And people are thinking they're getting their characters. Wrong. Imagine okay, so, uh, people are getting their characters wrong for the play that is called. This is similar to world war two in two ways. World war two, America. The boys have gone off to war. The women are now working in factories. All factory, all production has become about making things for war, right? We are recycling. We are rationing. Everything is for the war. We are lights out at night, right? There's lights out drills. So planes flying overhead can't see anything. There's a gas rationing. You know, you'd be like, thought of as a total asshole if you're driving by yourself, you know, carpooling. Everybody is sacrificing because the boys overseas are sacrificing their lives to fight Hitler and fascism. We're all in the whole world is in this together. The whole world that's on the side of fighting fascism. Then you've got the other inspirational stories of World War II are the people in the camps, right? The Holocaust survivors as they became or or not survivors as the case may be, but people in the camps. Everyone thinks they're Roberto fucking Benini in Life is Beautiful. Oh my God, we can't, I've never even seen that. It's like the one Holocaust movie I haven't seen because he seems so annoying. But it's just like, life is beautiful. I must go to the outdoor cafe because otherwise the Nazis win. And it's like, no, 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 you're not the Holocaust survivor. You're not the Holocaust person in this scenario. The frontline healthcare workers are the soldiers and also the Holocaust victims, uh, the people in the camps. They're the ones that are fighting all day. And they're the ones that are like forced to do this and have to go home and somehow find something in their heart that keeps them going. Hence, you know, I played piano in the, in the, in the camps and the Nazis let me have access to a piano. I charmed my way into, you know what, you hear these stories. How did you survive? Oh, it was a spirit of the triumph of the will, whatever. I think I just named a Nazi movie, Triumph of the Will. That's not what I meant. Everyone going to outdoor dining that doesn't need to, 
that has a perfectly great backyard or everyone having indoor parties that doesn't need to. You're not in the camps. You don't need to be beninying it. Life is beautiful. We gather together. No, you're you're the Rosie the Riveter. You're at home sacrificing. Your sacrifice is mask on if you must go somewhere. So see, it slowly just started to dribble and drabble and dribble and drabble. So from the top down on the Trump side, it's like, it's a hoax. It doesn't exist. Oh, wait, I got COVID, but it's fine. Uh, it's not that bad. Look at me. I survived, but I got all this treatment that you would never get, but forget that detail. Everyone come to my rallies. Okay. There's that. Then there's the liberal side, which is like, I can't believe these people aren't wearing masks. And then it's like, yeah, but what are you? Yeah. But also you're taking risks. Like it, it never became, it sort of ended up becoming, I think from the top down, like, you know, do whatevs, but wear a mask. And it's like, well, I'm not saying masks don't work, but do whatevs and wear a mask is still, it gets into our psychology, right? So like do whatevs, but wear a mask. And it's like, well, if you're doing that, then nothing seems abnormal. You start to get used to the mask and then you're like, oh, well, my friends are all wearing masks wherever they go. And then when they're not, they're at home. So why can't they come over? And it's like, because that's not what we do in a pandemic. We don't know. Everyone has who's had any contact with anyone. Ah, I don't need to explain it. But anyway, I, that's my new analogy is everyone is playing the wrong character in the World War II play. Everyone showed up thinking they're playing the part of the, the, the inspirational camp survivor who is playing piano and singing Life is Beautiful to cheer everyone up. We're not in the camps. We're the people at home sacrificing. Check the call sheet. You sign, You got cast in one part and you showed up in a different costume. Now stop it. I don't know. Anyway, so I'm not going to jury duty is my point. Let everyone else who's having a dinner party. Hey, you want to go inside and hang out with a bunch of people? Go to fucking jury duty. Take my thing. Can I send someone in my place? Hey, you've watched every law and order there is. You want to see it live? Go take my jury duty thing. So I'm going to check this time and I'm just going to pray to baby Jesus and adult Jesus and middle-aged Jesus and teenage Jesus that I am not called this week. Because I cannot. I also have a sore throat and a cough. But I, th I think it's my recurring GERD, silent reflux, because I am not sticking to my acid-free diet. I can only do so much in a pandemic. I, I'm addicted to acidic things. So uh, I will do this extreme non-acidic diet to, to get it under control. Then I will start to moderate. And then I start to not moderate. But anyway, whatever. The point is, I got a COVID test today. I'll find out the results in a couple of days. But, oh, I don't know. It, it, it's a lie. It's a lie that I, I don't have COVID. I mean, I probably don't. But I have symptoms of it but I know that it's not because I had a negative test last week and I didn't do anything that could have given it to me except go on a walk with a mask with a friend outside. So, and she doesn't have, so it's like, I don't think I could have it, but I took, I got a test today. I'll know in a couple of days, but the lie in my head is I didn't show up because I had COVID symptoms. Who am I going to tell that to? It's all computerized. I'll pay the fucking fine. I just, my worry is that they're going to come find me and throw me in jail. And then I'm just going to get COVID in jail. If they put me in jail for this, I mean, I hope everyone listening to this podcast, if that Keith Raniere from the vow freak from Nexium, I mean, who's a, a rapist pedophile, money laundering psycho. If he can have people, if there's people dancing outside the courthouse during his trial. I want you people dancing under my jail cell window and saying, let her out. It is not, I mean, every once in a while, you know, as an adult, are you ever just like, it's not fair. 
this isn't fair. And you're like, you're acting like a child inside. I'm like, it's not fair. That's how I feel. I, Jen Kirkman, should not have to serve jur- jury duty. Not because I think I'm some F-list celebrity, but because I am neurotic about COVID and I do have a pre-existing condition. I shouldn't have to serve. Email me if you ever get like that. Like, it's not fair about anything. Um, even when you're like, it's probably fair. I seem fun at gmail.com. So let's read this week's listener emails. Before we do, I want to give a shout out. Now, this level is now closed. You can join the $35 level, but this perk is now over. But uh, I think it's the last surviving shout out at the $35 level. If I'm wrong, if you subscribed and I didn't shout you out, of course, please send me a DM on Patreon. But uh, Bob Zerul, uh, his podcast is called Everyone is a Critic Movie Podcast. That was originally how it showed up and I didn't know what the name of this person was. So anyway, I'm saying both. So there you go, a little plug for your podcast. But the shout out to subscribers at the $35 level well, they I, they get a story made up about them, about how we're best friends. And this week, my best friend, Bob Zerul, oh my God, oh, we met. This is actually ironic that I was talking about jury duty. We met at the DMV. Um, Bob's an older gentleman, and I was taking my driver's test when I was 16. And now I feel like I shouldn't tell this story because it's really, you know, invading Bob's privacy. But Bob was my driving instructor and he got in the car and he was like, hey, kid, I'm a little hungover from last night. You know what I mean? And I was like, no, I'm 16. I've never had a hangover. And he was like, now, normally I drive and you pay attention on the right, but um, I'm going to need you to drive. I'm like, but this is my first lesson. I don't even know how to do anything. And he was like, it's going to be better than me because when I'm hungover and he gave me this whole story. So, you know, I'm getting in the car and he's like, when you're hungover, you technically still have alcohol in your system. And I was like, oh, okay. And he's like, so I'm probably technically legally drunk, but since you're the driver, it's fine. And I'm like, what if we get pulled over? And he's like, ah, it's fine. They all know me. I know Billy, the cop, and Bobby, the cop. I'm like, okay. And this might be where I got my attitude from if I I just don't have to show up to jury duty. Let them come arrest me. Anyway, so we get out of the car and I did a pretty good job. And then Bob says to me, I was just kidding. I'm not hungover. I'm not legally drunk. I just do that to all my students the first time just to see if they have what it takes to get their license. I go, I don't think that's what you're supposed to do, though. I think you're just supposed to, you know, teach us how to drive. And it's not a thing where you do that. And he's like, listen, I've got my school of driving, the Bob's a rule school. And those are my rules. Get it? And I'm like, yes. He goes, these are the rules. That was his whole thing. The rules are I have no rules. I make up the rules. You have rules. Your rules are you follow what I do. But he was right. When he put me in that high stress situation, I immediately instinctively knew how to drive. And that's what he was saying is driving is a lot of road rules, but a lot of instinct. And so I would like to thank him because he taught me how to drive on instinct. And then obviously I learned all the rules after that. One of Bob's big rules that he hates that people don't know about is the four way stop where there's two stop signs, but the other sides aren't. And the people at the the no stop sign, uh, he hates when they stop when they don't need to. And he hates when the stop sign people don't stop. And you know what? It's to this day, I feel the same way about four-way intersections. I'm always, I'm always thinking of Bob's rule. So imagine my surprise when he showed up as a subscriber on my podcast. Thank you, Bob. And, and I hope that, uh, I hope that everyone enjoys your podcast. Everyone is a critic movie podcast. So Bob did since retire from being a, a uh, driving teacher. I think he got into some legal trouble with people didn't really like his style. And so um, he became a movie critic, which I think is a lot better, a lot safer, maybe for a lot of people, because, you know, again, you throw a kid into the driver's seat of a car, they're not always going to know how to go on instinct. So thank you again. That's your, that's your shout out, Bob. So this week, let's come to Let's wind this. Let's land this plane. Let's land this plane whose window is blown out. Listener emails. Things that annoy you that aren't a big deal. Listener emails. This topic has been flourishing for weeks and I love it. Jen. I was scrolling on Twitter and I remembered this topic. I can't stand fake butterflies 
or roses in regards to tattoos, but I love real ones of both. Actions that annoy me. People who don't return their grocery carts when the cart return is nearby. Oh, me too. Also nose blowing, especially at the table. Who does that? But really anytime. I might have a touch of misophonia, but nose blowing is really the only thing that makes me unnaturally furious. Oh, and people, mostly men, who eat or chew gum. It makes me very, very sad that I noticed this about beloved Kate McKinnon during the SNL post-show mingles with their mouths open. She chomps her gum in public on TV. Um, maybe that explains how she dated Barry Weiss in college. Chomp equals bad taste in women. I don't even know who that is. Oh, this woman is a Patreon subscriber and she was telling me that she loved. So I did a bonus episode last week with my friend, Michael, who, um, it was like over an hour long bonus. He tried, the Nexium cult tried to indoctrinate him. And he was like, uh, no, this is a cult by, but he met all the people, Keith Ranieri, Allison Mack, all the whole team. Um, and this one woman was like, I'm going to tell my therapist the story. She said, my therapist loved, um, the story of your friend's Nexium experience. Thanks again. Thanks again. Um, anyway, blah, blah, blah. That's from Nancy. Uh, someone else said, Jen, two of my low stakes annoyances are as follows. People who take food out of the microwave before it beeps and don't hit clear or cancel, leaving a few seconds on the timer. So when I look at the clock, it says 14 seconds instead of the time. Sometimes it's even one second. And I'm like, why couldn't they wait one more second until the timer went off? That I do that to myself at home, and I hate when I do it. Two, people who make treats to give as gifts or share, and they put mint-flavored candies cookies in the same container as non-mint-flavored items. The mint flavor permeates the rest of the treats and makes them taste weird at best, awful at worst. Why doesn't anyone consider this and put mint-flavored treats in a separate container? Do you know what? I'm not a fan of being given food as a gift for Christmas. It's always like, listen, I know there's food. I know there's treats and sweets and fattening things. And trust me, I have found it. I have gotten it. I'm, I have secured some for myself. And then, you know, there's certain things not every, like, I don't like chocolate. Don't yell at me. I love a hot chocolate, cup of hot chocolate. I like white chocolate. I do like the taste of a really good dark chocolate, but I just don't crave it. And it's really bad for my reflux. So the things that like I have to do in moderation, it's not worth it to add that into my moderation. I just don't like it enough. So it's just not in my life. But yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. Do I like chocolate ice cream? Sure. But again, it's not like this whole thing. Women love chocolate on their periods. Not, I don't care. Never thinking about it. Never thinking about chocolate. And so when we were like, I made chocolates. Do you don't want any, Jen? No, I can share shell a diet. No, I'm shoving mashed potatoes in my face, but I just don't care about chocolate. I hate when people give you food as a gift and then they stare at you like, isn't it your favorite thing? You're like, you could have asked me. No, it's not. Anyway, this is a super fan. I don't even want to read it because I'm going to embarrass you all. But she continues. I love your podcast. I road trip twice to see you in Oklahoma City. I have both your books autographed. I recommend your specials to everyone. I'm always sharing tidbits from your shows, starting with my favorite comedian, Jen Kirkman says, I've been buying your merch since the Bobble Bar collection. I wore my Women Are Literally Humans t-shirt on election day, and I got so many compliments from the people at my polling place. I bought a t-shirt for my sister and a onesie for my niece for Christmas. You are brilliant and hilarious. I appreciate your work on anxiety and relaxation. I work at a domestic violence shelter and had looked for a fitting grounding exercise for the expressive writing class I teach there for a long time. And now I use your process of looking at our hands and saying, I'm not in the future. I'm not in the past. I'm here in the moment. Short, simple, and immensely valuable. Thank you. I'm super excited for your dysfunctional Christmas show. I'll be joining Patreon soon. I asked for a membership for Christmas. Hey, that's a great Christmas gift. Thanks for all you do. Um, from calling out comedy clubs to educating men about feminism, would a straight man say this to another straight man in an elevator has become a quote I share frequently. You're the best, Sarah. Well, I didn't mean to go on and on and let Sarah compliment me, but hey, that does remind me my merchandise store 
There is new holiday merchandise, a picture of Carol Brady's face that says a Christmas Carol, a a few other different designs, the most wonderful time of the year, but all kinds of designs in the store. They can be made into pins and stickers and mugs and T-shirts and onesies and hoodies and sweatshirts and pillows and whatever. And so if you go to jenkirkman.com, click shop, that takes you to my T Public store. The good news about all of it is after T Public takes their cut and they pay me, I take 100% of what I earn and I give it to an organization called Fund the Front Lines and they get healthcare workers the PPE they need. Just $25 gets a worker everything they need. So, you know, obviously they need more than at one time, but we've sent over $4,000 so far and I'm going to keep doing this for November and December. So keep on shopping and I will keep on donating. I just sent in a $750 donation for last month's sales. So there you go. Um, And then now we're just getting into regular listener emails, I think. Jen, a few episodes ago, you talked about your experience at the eye doctor. Yes, I had talked about how she was kind of making small talk. And I was like, we're in a small room with masks. Let's just hurry this up. There's a pandemic now. Am I the only one? Just me? Okay. A few weeks ago, I went to get my prescription updated. And instead of just examining my eyes, my doctor thought it would be fine to sit less than six feet away from me and take his mask off to ask me about how my dad is doing. I literally don't know this man and don't know why he cares about my dad since they've never met. Then, still with his mask off, he starts asking me if I'm good with computers and if I'm organized because he wants to hire me as his secretary. I came to get my eyes checked, not be interviewed for a job I didn't ask for. Why are men like this, Emily? (laughs) I don't have enough time to explain that to you. Oh, God. I want to know, is your dad famous or something? Why was he, like, there's something missing from that story. I need to know. Okay. This is a celebrity gossip email. Jen, a few years ago, my girlfriend and I were sitting at a table directly behind the bar at a popular restaurant. I won't say the state. We were looking at the TVs above the bar watching a surf competition, and this guy kept turning around to look at us. I asked my girlfriend, what the fuck does this guy keep looking at? And she casually said, that's Mr. Big. Now, if you guys don't know, that's that means that's the guy who plays Mr. Big from Sex and the City. I grew up in Vermont, so even though I lived in this other state for almost six years, running into celebrities still really not on my radar. I took another look, and it was clear she was right. He was drunk and kept trying to stick his hand up the skirt of the woman sitting next to him. Gross. When he got up to leave, he walked over to our table and initiated conversation. I don't remember what he started with, but then he asked, do you ski? I thought that's a very weird question to ask someone in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Oh, okay, I guess they're, they're in Hawaii. I can reveal it. But I said I used to snowboard in high school. He talked to us for a couple more seconds, then he left. It wasn't until I was telling a friend the story that she called me an idiot and told me that's code for cocaine. I could not stop laughing, thinking about how my response to him was that I used to snowboard when he was asking about cocaine. I'm curious about what makes me look like I go to restaurants with coke in my pocket. Anyway, fast forward maybe a year later, and he sat in my section at the restaurant that I used to work at. I wanted to bring it up to him, but I was pretty sure he was with his mom. I just served their table, never acknowledging that I knew who he was one way or the other. Uh, I know someone that had a cocaine story with him. Uh, Someone I know who's also in the public eye was um, he was on their show and he was like, what are you doing after the show? Like, want to do coke? And they were like, what? Or they were, I don't remember what it was. Um, and great story, Jen. Real hot gossip there. But there you go. Everybody. Huh. I mean, what a week, right? I hope everyone's taking care of themselves. I know I've given you a lot of information today. Maybe caused some anxiety with that plane story. Again, if you want to get a free 52-page PDF with tips for all kinds of anxiety, send me an email. I compiled this all during the pandemic because I noticed that people were having more anxiety than ever. So it's like, different books you can read or podcasts you can listen to or articles you can read. All of it is just like certifiable anxiety, documented therapy type stuff. 
and uh, or, you know, suggestions for memoirs you can read or whatever. Some some of the things you have to buy, like if I suggest a book, obviously you have to buy it, but like a lot of free podcasts, a lot of things you can just get into. I just try to send you on your way with different rabbit holes that you can discover if for some reason right now you are not able to go to therapy. So just email anxietybitesweekly at gmail.com and I'll send that to you. Again, the Patreon, patreon.com slash Jen Kirkman, jenkirkman.com slash shop, jenkirkman.com, just plain old that for access to my Christmas show on December 4th. Oh, I don't know. I could go on and on plugging things, but I think you get the fucking gist. And uh, so thanks for listening to this podcast. Subscribe if you're not already subscribing. That helps other people find it. If you want to leave a five-star review for this week, you can just write, um, I was hanging out of an airplane or something. I don't know. No, you can write, I take my kids to see planes crash. That's why I love this podcast. That that can be your five-star review for this week. And all right, I think we're good here. Until next week, have fun. (laughs) 